This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone. How y'all doing on this uh, beautiful, what is today, Wednesday? I have, can you have any check? I, I almost made the mistake. I, I wondered if I chose the right day when I was reading the weather because it feels, you know. I, I know. It one screws day. you up. One day being off. Yeah, yeah. It can really throw you. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> We're creatures of habit, obviously. Yeah. We like schedules and that. And uh, I know uh, you hear over the years, you know, children like structure. Well, gosh, I must be a big <laughs> kid because I really like a bit of structure to help me figure navigate my yeah me too <laughs> me too it does not feel like a wednesday <laughs> so all day long and you know yeah. i'm writing stories all day long and you know you got to slug them uh, what we call slug them in the business and uh putting uh, I, I, every day i'm like monday tuesday when, uh, it's wednesday right. okay it but, wednesday. there we go <laughs> and I'll, I'll do that five or six hundred times a day <laughs> so there you have it but it is a beautiful day were you out today Claudette no I didn't get a chance to go out now I'm going to go out for a run after work and I'm just looking at the forecast so it looks like it's clear tonight and sunny tomorrow so I'm ecstatic good, good. uh yeah I have to say I, I darted out over lunch and oh. uh, it it was showing 10 degrees on mm-hmm. my dash. But it was still cold, right? No, it felt warm. Oh, it felt really warm. I'm, I'm like, why surprised. am I wearing a jacket? Okay. So, you know, it all depends on where you are and whether or not the wind is breezing I up. Know, it's and so different. How exposed you happen to be. <laughs> uh, what temperatures look like. It's yeah. weird. And it is. And you don't know how to dress. Not you personally, but like for me, I don't know how to dress going out in a sprintered situation in Newfoundland yet. I keep making the wrong decisions. Well, and and like my, oh, I don't have my coat with me. I was just reaching <laughs> back over my chair because I always lay it over to, chair. Yeah. Reaching back over my chair. In each of my pockets are a variety of things that I need <laughs> on a regular basis. So I have my house keys in one. Yeah my car not car keys but like the key to get into this building mm-hmm. and that sort of thing and another and i keep them separate so i'm not always like fumbling around with the different keys and poop bags <laughs> for you i'm hoping a pet yes for the dog <laughs> <laughs> thanks Claudette. <laughs> so this is what you know i and so if you don't you're like ah oh, it's beautiful today just gonna go oh, on yeah, and you take right? it off and then you lose and then all you're your like stuff? oh my gosh how am i getting into work See, that's what, what am I doing? How am I getting back in the house? What's going to happen here? We need to bring back the fanny pack, Linda. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Who there knows? could be some truth in that. <laughs> I hadn't thought about but it. How often do I do that? Or it's raining and you take it off, but all of your stuff is in that raincoat. In that coat. Yeah. Exactly. Well, um, uh, I'll leave the poop bags alone. <laughs> 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 well, on to um, some of the news of the day today. The Office of the Privacy Commissioner finally released its report into the 2021 cyber attack on the healthcare system. And this is the one that caused government some concern some time ago. If you recall, uh, there were some questions about a possible conflict of interest by the Privacy Commissioner, Michael Harvey, having um, uh, been a, as a 
a bureaucrat having worked in the Department of Health and Community Services. So that raised some questions with the justice minister in particular. So uh, the um, privacy commissioner recused himself, if you recall, from that, even though he uh, denied that there was any um, sense of, uh, of a conflict of interest there. And his delegate, Sean Murray, uh, took over that uh, role. So uh, in that particular case, uh, the report into the cyber attack back in October of 2021, um, Sean Murray released the results of his report this morning, and here's what he had to say. We're here today because I'm releasing a report under the authority of the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner into the 2021 cyber attack on our provincial health care information systems. The 2021 cyber attack was by far the largest of its kind ever experienced in this province and one of the largest in Canadian history to date in terms of the number of people whose information was stolen and the impact that it had across the health system. My name is Sean Murray. I'm Director of Research and Quality Assurance with the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner. This is an independent office of the House of Assembly, meaning that we don't report to a minister or department and we have complete autonomy over our investigations within our mandate and jurisdiction. We oversee compliance with the Personal Health Information Act and the Access to Information and Protection of Privacy Act. I was tasked by Information and Privacy Commissioner Michael Harvey with overseeing this investigation from the start. However, in March of this year, he delegated full authority for the investigation and issuance of a report to me. That report was sent to the parties yesterday and is being released to the public today. I'd like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the immense challenge that the cyber attack posed to the people who run our public health care system. From the frontline employees and managers to the executives and political leadership, this was an extremely difficult time for all concerned, and their hard work in responding to this challenge deserves recognition. I'd also like to thank our staff whose dedication and excellence made this report possible. The primary purpose of this report and the laws that underpin it is the protection of the personal information and personal health information of the people of this province, and that is our ultimate focus. The report we're issuing today contains 34 findings and six recommendations. All six recommendations are directed to the new Provincial Health Authority. Our report found that significant cybersecurity vulnerabilities existed for some time prior to the cyber attack, and that these vulnerabilities were known within the Center for Health Information when it took over responsibility for cybersecurity from the regional health authorities. It was also clear that the regional health authorities had not been maintaining appropriate cybersecurity prior to that time. The Department of Health and Community Services was informed in 2020, over a year prior to the cyber attack, that a threat assessment rated the chances of a cyber attack as high and the impact of such an event as high. In other words, the ransomware attack against our public health information systems was a foreseeable event. Efforts to reduce these vulnerabilities prior to the cyber attack were inadequate. The result was a ransomware attack that saw the personal health information or personal information of the vast majority of our population being taken. Our report found that the Center for Health Information took reasonable steps to investigate the cause of the cyber attack and attempt to contain the privacy breach. 
Many, but not all, of the steps taken to notify affected individuals were reasonable. The Department of Health and Community Services took a leading role in what information would be disclosed and when, and it did not provide an adequate response to our questions to justify the delay in publicly disclosing certain details about the cyber attack. There is some good news. The havoc caused by the cyber, cyber attack is not the end of the story. Since the date of the attack, substantial effort has been expanded by the Center for Health Information, now part of the new Provincial Health Authority, through a series of projects called Breakwater, which has significantly enhanced cybersecurity for our provincial health information systems. Our report concludes that reasonable cybersecurity steps have been taken since the cyber attack and work is continuing in order to mitigate the risk of a future cyber attack and to reduce its impact should one occur. So that is uh, the uh, Sean Murray with the Office of the Privacy Commissioner outlining some of the results of his report into the cyber attack on the healthcare system back in October of 2021, indicating that the uh, ransomware attack was a foreseeable event and that there were uh, some indicators that something was going on. Well, the issue was raised in the House of Assembly during question period this afternoon. The Honourable the Leader of the Official Opposition. Speaker, the cyber attack that struck our healthcare system in 2021 affected more people than the Liberal government ever made public. The report says, and I quote, the vast majority of the population of the province had some amount of personal information or personal health information taken by the cyber attackers. This is the first time that the public have been informed of the true magnitude of this attack. I asked the Premier, why did your government hide the sheer scale of this attack on the healthcare system? The Honourable the Premier. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. First of all, let me take this opportunity to thank the people who are working in the system during that horrific time, Mr. Speaker. Here, here. Not only, not only were they challenged with the cyber attack, Mr. Speaker, they were challenged at the time. It's easy to forget with the pandemic and challenges associated with that and vaccines, Mr. Speaker. That said, Mr. Speaker, we were very open in our communications. In fact, we said immediately upon recognition that there was a problem. We said we didn't know the scope of the problem, but we said that it was a potential that many Newfoundlanders and Labradorians could have been involved in this. And we, we were very open with the communication on that, Mr. Speaker, from day one, offering regular public updates. Mr. Speaker. The Honourable the Leader of the Official Opposition. Thank you, Speaker. And our recollection of what went on, particularly around the debate in the House and questions out uh, in the scrum there, was the difference, that the information was being shared with the people of this province. Speaker, we learned that hundreds of thousands of people have, have not been personally notified that they were victims of this attack. I asked the Premier, why are we only finding out these numbers today? The Honourable the Premier. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. That's in fact not true, Mr. Speaker. We did notify everybody in a broad public disclosure that it was a potential that their records could have been violated, Mr. Speaker. We we're very open about that. We did that in a public forum, Mr. Speaker, through a media avail, Mr. Speaker. We did that with the Minister of Justice. We did that with the Minister of Health at the time, Mr. Speaker. We had a full public, public disclosure that everybody's records could have potentially been affected, Mr. Speaker. The Honourable the Leader of the Official Opposition. Uh, Mr. Speaker. 
every patient that had COVID-19 testing by uh, up to 2021 and their patient information stolen in the cyber attack. Why on earth would the province not personally notify everyone that had their information taken by the cyber attack? The minister wants to talk, or the premier in facts, ask these ministers who talk about facts, the facts that hundreds of thousands of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians did have their information hacked and they did not share the information or the notice to the people of the province. What does the minister or the premier say about that? The Honourable Minister of Justice and Public Safety. Thank you, Speaker. And I think it's important to uh, actually look at what the report says that came out this morning. And what it does say is that the province and the health authorities, let's not forget it was the health authorities where the attack occurred, not the government itself, that they took reasonable steps to do the investigation after they realized that it was a cyber attack, which of course took some time to figure out what exactly happened, took reasonable steps to contain the information and the breach as much as possible in the circumstances, took reasonable steps to make public disclosure, as, we, as the Premier said, ongoing uh, public addresses, uh, numerous letters that went out throughout the period of time as information became available to the government and the health authorities, and took reasonable steps to provide supports to individuals who were jeopardized and were at risk in the situation, including myself, who signed up for, the, uh, for that opportunity as well to have credit monitoring just to be on the safe side. So uh, if you do look at the report, a lot of good findings in there. Of course, there's some work to do. There's always work to do, and we'll continue to work hard to ensure everything is private in the health care system as we go. Okay. The Honourable the Leader of the Official Opposition. Mr. Speaker, I would have thought, and we would have thought over in this side of the House, and the people in Newfoundland and Labrador, that reasonable steps would have been to notify people if their personal information had been hacked, and to give them an opportunity to get supports that were necessary. They didn't do this. So that's Opposition Leader David Brazel questioning the Premier and Justice Minister John Hogan in the House of Assembly today on the cyber attack on the healthcare system in October of 2021 in the findings of Sean Murray's report into that uh, cyber attack and some of the, um, I guess, uh, questions raised about um, personal security uh, and um, security over personal information, I should say. Your thoughts on that? I would uh, welcome you to give us a call. Well, coming up, an A-tip request by the family of a deaf student shows how much the English school district spent on defending itself against a human rights complaint. This is News Talk on VOCM. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And we're back. Well, you likely heard this morning about the amount of money spent by the English school district in defending itself against a human rights complaint made by the family of a deaf child. Earlier this year, a human rights commission ruled that Carter Churchill, a student at Beachy Cove Elementary, had been discriminated against by the school board for failing to provide reasonable accommodations for the child between 2016 and 2020. Uh, and if you recall, one of those um, accommodations was uh, having a, a teacher who um, could communicate with him uh, through American Sign Language. Uh, now, an access to information request made by the Churchill family shows that the school district paid out almost $700,000 to lawyers to fight the case. Here's part of Noah Shepard's interview with Carter's dad, Todd Churchill. About two or three weeks ago, we put in an access to information request on the legal fees charged by Stuart McKelvey, a private law firm, to represent the district since 2017 to defend the discrimination of my son. And we found out that the total cost over five years was $681,917.22. Almost three quarters of a million dollars to justify discrimination of a five-year-old deaf child in a wheelchair. It's disgusting when you think about this is what the government is prioritizing over things like health care, hiring more teachers, and, and this is where people's taxpayers' dollars go. To know that that much was put up by the school board in the case, how does that make you feel? 
It, it makes me feel very angry because, as we said, when we, we found a decision, we did some media interviews, we felt that the district's only defense was to bleed us white financially. And they thought they bled us enough and they bankrupted us enough, we'd give up. And clearly they were in, they just they just thought they could just grind us down. And they never met parents like us before that never. And almost $700,000 of taxpayer money was spent to, to defend something that they clearly accept was a problem now, now that they have a finding. And no one will be, dis- nobody will be disciplined over it. It's, it's shocking. I mean, I think the people of the province should be outraged. So that's Todd Churchill um, uh, talking to Noah Shepard, which aired this morning. And the story which VOCM News carried uh, came up in the House of Assembly this afternoon. Speaker, residents of the province are shocked to learn that the Liberal government spent almost $700,000 to fight Carter Churchill's rights to an education. This is an outrageous abuse of power against the Churchill family who were fully vindicated. Speaker, how can the Premier defend this outrageous decision on his watch? Great question. The Honourable the Premier. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. First of all, the incident occurred before my watch, Mr. Speaker. It was changes brought on secondary to previous administration, Mr. Speaker, under a different colour, Mr. Speaker. That said... This issue is not about me, it's not about them, it's about the parents who suffered, Mr. Speaker. And as I have said in this House, Mr. Speaker, I apologize for any suffering that any government, as I sit in this chair as Premier, has caused them or their son, Mr. Speaker. We will endeavour to continue to improve the situation, not only for that patient, that person, Mr. Speaker, but all pupils in our, student, in our, in our education system, Mr. Speaker. The Honourable, the Leader of the Official Opposition. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. This is about accountability here Absolutely. when it comes to rights to education in Newfoundland and Labrador. Speaker, the Liberal government allowed the English school district to spend almost $700,000 fighting the Churchill family, which, according to his father, and I quote, was used to justify the discrimination of a five-year-old deaf child in a wheelchair. Speaker, who is going to be held accountable for this disgraceful treatment of the Carter family? Great question. The Honourable the Premier. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Once again, the the member opposite points out that it was an English school district issue, Mr. Speaker. Again, it was secondary to changes that were brought on by a different administration, Mr. Speaker. We are here to... That said, Mr. Speaker, as I've said and will continue to say, we are sympathetic to that particular... uh, particular family and that particular student, Mr. Speaker, and there is always ways to improve, and we will endeavour to improve. But that was prior to my watch, Mr. Speaker. It's unfortunate that that money had to be spent. There's no one who wanted to spend money in that way, Mr. Speaker. We want to make sure that that money is being appropriately spent to enhance the education opportunities for all Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. The Honourable, the Opposition House Leader. Thank you, uh, Mr. Speaker. And Premier, your name is over the door on the eighth floor. You should have, you should demand answers from them. $700,000 on your watch, Mr. Speaker. Yeah. Your name is over the door, Premier. So there you have it. Uh, David Brazel, Premier Fury, Barry Petten there at the end. Uh, your thoughts on that? Uh, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. And uh, before we take a break for um, the news, I want to pass on some very sad news uh, this afternoon. Uh, Tina Turner, um, legendary rock and roll singer, of course, has uh, passed away at the age of 83. This is uh, from The Guardian in the UK, Tina Turner, the pioneering rock and roll star who became a pop behemoth in the 1980s 
died at the age of 83 after a long illness. She had suffered ill health in recent years, being diagnosed with intestinal cancer in 2016 and having a kidney transplant in 2017. Growing up in some pretty, um, I suppose, uh, rough and challenging conditions in uh, Nutbush, Tennessee, uh, she uh, rose to rock stardom. Uh, she uh, married Ike Turner, and uh, he arguably made her a star, but she rose beyond that. They had a very turbulent and tumultuous relationship with a lot, which a lot of people well know. Um, and she rose above all of that and broke out as a uh, uh, um, uh, individual singer. Solo artist, yeah. Solo artist, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, she had that fabulous performance in the Who's Tommy, which, uh, as the uh, Acid Queen, which is just, uh, you know, one of the most iconic, I guess, rock moments of all time. Uh, but then she got more into the, the, the pop sort of stardom and uh, was filling huge arenas and uh, stadiums through the 1980s. Um, Came with St. John's in 1985, I think. Did you see her? I didn't. I would have been around 10 or 9. Ah, <laughs> I'm not sure. Very but no, good. I would have loved to have seen uh, Tina Turner. She's just simply the best. I was, uh, no doubt. Uh, I was living in Montreal, of course, at the time when she had reached that that level stardom. of superstardom, mm -hmm. uh, ultra stardom. And uh, um, she played Montreal several times at the time. And I just never had that opportunity to get my hands on some tickets. My sister saw her several times. Really? Loved it. Loved every minute of it. But what a performer, what a penultimate, uh, I don't know, talent, uh, classy, and um, of course, um, uh, you know, very strong victorious. woman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 it's hard to, to find all of the words to, to find describe the right such. words, but we're going to hear a little bit from Tina Turner a little later on in the show. In the meantime, we are up to news time now. Uh, if you have thoughts on Tina Turner or if you had an opportunity to see her, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. This is News Talk on VOCM. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. And we're back. And of course, uh, the sad news uh, just came down that uh, Tina Turner, uh, rock and roll icon, uh, has passed away at the age of 83. She moved to Switzerland in the last uh, couple of decades of her life and was living a very comfortable and happy life by uh, all um, accounts. I happened to see a few um, great uh, interviews and documentaries about her in uh, recent years, uh, still holding her own, even though she was battling some pretty serious health issues of late. Uh, 83 years old, passed on today, and that is an era of rock and roll that won't soon be um, equaled. Well, the provincial government has announced a number of new programs to help Ukrainians still looking for permanent housing or employment settle into Newfoundland and Labrador. Immigration Minister Jerry Byrne made the announcement earlier today. It's time to make sure that all 2,800 and all who arrive in the future succeed. But remember, they are succeeding. Over 1,600 have already achieved and found market housing. None are in provincial government social housing. All 1,600 are in community. There was a remarkable upsurge in the number of Ukrainians who arrived since January of 2023. 
So our last charter was in December of 2022. There was a remarkable upsurge of what I call independent arrivals since January of 2023. Ukrainians who came by their own means, their own steam, to our province. Why? Because they knew that 2,100 who have arrived on their own means knew this was a fantastic place to live and a place of refuge. Let's keep doing that. Let's keep sending that message. So today, I am here to announce a suite of initiatives to make sure that all Ukrainians not only feel welcome, but succeed in our province. We're here at Regatta Plaza where we have to be short in our time because there's already an employment session underway here for Ukrainians. We are hard at work. So some of the issues that we have identified and I'll now ask Roman, who is a Ukrainian uh, leader and someone who I've gotten to know in the last number of months with a great amount of prestige and spirit in my heart for his friendship. Roman will do some translation because of the words that I spoke earlier were for Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, but now I need to speak to all Ukrainians. I need to tell them what is about to be available to them. So we recognize that housing, housing is important. And while 1,600 uh, Ukrainians have found market housing in the community at large, they're living in 40 communities throughout our entire province. We want to encourage that success because a home is essential to making that home. We're inviting as a first measure, we're inviting property owners throughout the entire province who have houses and apartments and who are interested in renting housing to working Ukrainian families to list their properties in a province-wide database. Work on this initiative is already underway and it's part of the reason why we've had the success, success with the 1,600 Ukrainians already settled away in market housing in 40 different communities. Our regional development centers, employment centers uh, located across the province will be asked to uh, engage landlords and to uh, get the word out about the opportunity. The ANC will lead this initiative and we will support it. This is a very successful way to unlocking housing. But in the move out, we recognize that the transition from temporary housing to, a, um, to market housing, to your own home, it's sometimes expensive. Ukrainians left their home with two suitcases maximum each. They did not bring a lot of materials. So recognizing there are significant additional expenses incurred moving away from temporary accommodations to new one's own home, we are offering a moving allowance to all Ukrainians. Uh, those who secure a one-year lease in a, a community and who have secured employment to support themselves and are ready to get into community, we will offer a moving allowance. The moving allowance will be based on costs normally anticipated. For those moving from temporary housing into uh, places in the Northeast Avalon, we will offer $2,000 per family. For those living temporary accommodations to the rest of the island of the province, we will offer $4,000 in a moving allowance. And for those families moving to Labrador, and mo the moving benefit will be increased to $6,000.
So there you go. Some new um, initiatives, I suppose, to help Ukrainians settle into Newfoundland and Labrador. Some of them still struggling to find uh, permanent housing in this province and um, uh, work. Um, I would like to hear from anybody who uh, knows any Ukrainians or any Ukrainians who are comfortable coming on the radio to tell us about their experiences. Uh, is it what you were expecting? I know that they're uh, safe uh, here in Newfoundland and Labrador, but is it what they were expecting in terms of uh, housing and jobs and all the like of that when they were encouraged to come here? And and there are some challenges. There are a lot of challenges when it comes to housing here in Newfoundland and Labrador, and I'm not sure what some of the uh, mitigating factors are there. Where certainly there's cost and that sort of thing, but I don't know if the whole um, unlicensed accommodation uh, side of uh, the argument is is affecting the availability of um, uh, available properties. Uh, I can't say. Yeah, my heart goes out. To, I don't know if you've ever seen, I'm sure you have on social media, especially on, on Facebook, you'll see certain uh, pages dedicated to Ukrainian people trying to get them either jobs or, or homes, and they're advertising their family. They're showing a picture of their family, and they state all of these wonderful qualities about their family in hopes that maybe the right person who owns a house or would rent to them, um, you know, they got to sell themselves. And it, it must be really, really tough to do that. I, I know, uh, you know, generalities are not uh, fair many times, but uh, um, Ukraine, Ukrainians and Eastern Europeans as a whole tend to be very uh, hardworking, mm -hmm. uh, professional, um, uh, studious, um, focused, um, you know, all of those qualities that, that you would um, want to you, have around that, you. <laughs> uh, you know, most yeah. employers or, or uh, renters would, you know, really desire. Uh, so um, with any luck, I mean, we get to see people stay. And, you know, from the accounts that I've heard so far, you know, the Ukrainians that are here and are settled in like it. They think it's a nice place. <laughs> and they add to our culture. I'm just love sure. watching them succeed. You know, they're very, whatever their skills are, whether it's uh, opening up a bake shop or their photography. Um, I'm, I'm just so happy that they are part of Newfoundland Labrador. But, you know, like people say it's it's tough you got to market yourself and yeah. and hope that you you know that you can um, market yourself in such a way that people understand you because language is a barrier it's a big barrier and of course uh, eastern european language is so very vastly different from uh, um, you know even english is one of the french and english right yeah. uh, you know at least in french you have some um similar things that you can get by like uh Dialects, well, or, familiarity for yeah. starters with mm -hmm. with the English language. You know, there's a there's a greater familiarity rather than, um, you know, in Eastern Europe where you you know while it's desired, it's not usually sought out because you can usually get by without it, right? <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so yeah, there a lot of difficulties there. Um, so anybody with thoughts on that is certainly welcome to give us a call as well. Well, it was a big day in Corner Brook today and uh, they had beautiful weather, of course. I uh, don't need to tell the people of Corner Brook that, but the city of Corner Brook is swinging open its doors. It's opening its arms and it is even opening up its roads to visitors this summer for the 10-day Jigs and Wheels Festival starting on July 28th. The festival embraces ATV and off-road uh, off bike traffic, making the most of the tourism opportunities that that uh, sector presents. Well, here's Cornerbrook Mayor Jim Parsons from this morning's announcements. 
Well, we're back to summer. And it's a beautiful day to announce um, our second Jigs and Wheels Festival. Yeah. So starting July, July 28th to August 6th this year, we're going to bring back Jigs and Wheels. Now, last year we had a phenomenal kickoff. Um, it's a project that we had been working on since before the COVID event, which we won't talk about anymore. And we had thousands of people visit our city and our region. We have a lineup even better this year. So we're bringing back, we're doing a 10 day event. We're gonna bring back some of our favorites from last time. Things like Blame It On Broadway, our car show here on West Street. Our Quarterbrook Day will be celebrated during that week as well, and we're going to have lots of family-friendly events throughout the week. And, of course, lots of ATV events, including an ATV scavenger hunt. So this year, we're adding a few new events, and that includes we're doing an autocross event up at the Civic, up at the Civic Center. Even the mill is participating this morning. We've got a dirt bike and electric bike show and demos up at Marble Mountain. We're doing a food and ATV tour down to Lark Harbor. Of course, there's going to be a ton of music events, family-friendly events all throughout the week. But what I'm most excited about with this festival a few years ago, we started a project called STAR, which was a uh, strategic tourism and er for areas and regions. It's an ACOA program, and the idea was that we needed to incorporate everyone in our region, all of our stakeholders, because people don't come to Cornerbrook. They come to the Bay of Islands and the Humber Valley. Whoa. Ah, perfect. Oh, that's better. Thank you. <laughs> now, we are working with our partners. We've moved forward with the STAR process. We have a committee in place. Uh, we're calling it now, what are we calling it, Glenda? The Lower Humber Bay of Islands? The Lower Humber Bay of Islands Tourism Committee. And it involves stakeholders from both sides of the bay, Lower Humber, as the title would suggest, but from all types of tourism operators and partners. This event will also incorporate things happening all around the region. So we're very happy to include both sides of the bay as part of our uh, tourism event this year, Jigs and Wheels. And we're even promoting things like the Party on the Hill uh, up in Massey Drive, which was a great success. And again, their success is our success. And that's the way we have to think about tourism in this region. Well, that was Jim Parsons uh, this morning in Corner Brook with uh, the big announcement for the uh, this coming uh, Jigs and Wheels Festival, 10-day festival that uh, embraces uh, ATV and off-road bike traffic uh, starting July 10th, uh, 28th, sorry, running through to August 6th. And I'm going off the top of my head now, Claudette, I can't really remember, but it's, uh, yeah, 10 days from 28th of July. So uh, they got some uh, great uh, activities there. And you're going to hear a whole lot more about 
about that in the coming days. Well, coming up, a London-based research group releases its findings into a nationwide homelessness study in Happy Valley Goose Bay. And uh, we'll pay tribute to the late, great Tina Turner. This is News Talk on VOCM. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. And we're back. The Lawson Health Research Institute of London, Ontario, will host a homelessness forum in Goose Bay tomorrow to outline some of the findings and data collected in the region last year as part of a national homelessness research project they've undertaken. Researcher and psychiatric mental health nurse Dr. Cheryl Forchuk has been working with several federal government agencies to gain a more accurate picture about homelessness across the country, particularly in rural areas. She joins me now. Well, hello, Cheryl Forchuk. Hello, Linda. So uh, tell us, first of all, what uh, the, the Lawson Health Research Institute is and what it does. Yeah, so the Lawson Health Research Institute is the research arm of all the hospitals in London, Ontario. We uh, have a kind of integrated approach to research, and we're also uh, affiliated with uh, Western University in London, Ontario. So you have this homelessness forum. What's drawing your attention to Goose Bay? So basically, so I, by background, uh, uh, I'm a psychiatric mental health nurse. That, that's uh, what my PhD is in. And we we find that the homeless, when you look at the homeless population, people with uh, mental health challenges, including addiction, are overrepresented. So I, I've had an interest for a time and one of uh, and have conducted research in this area. One of the problems we always have is our numbers seem to be lower than what the problem is. Uh, so we received federal funding to try to come up with a better way of calculating this. And one of the problems with the current system is that people have to touch the healthcare system, and many people, not pardon me, but have to touch the homeless sector, uh, and many people don't, um, and so they end up being missed. Uh, and there also tends to be a bias to the larger urban centers in terms of who is reporting data. Uh, so we went to 28 communities across the country, every province, every territory, large and small places, including Goose Bay last year. Uh, and we're coming back to those communities to talk to them about what we've learned so far. We've got one more year in the grant. And, and we, when we came out previously, we'd had focus groups prior with uh, frontline workers, people uh, th- that were directly involved in providing services, but also um, when we came, we interviewed people who were experiencing homelessness. Um, as I say, we, we've done this across the country. And, and one of the things that when I was saying about healthcare, when I would meant to say um, the homeless sector, one of the things we know about people who experience homelessness, they also interact um, with the healthcare system or they, they tend to have more physical challenges. And you, you can imagine why lower nutritional status, um, you know, often exposure to the elements, et cetera. So even with the ER, they're, even though people often avoid the ER on one hand, but they're four to 10 times, depending on the study, more likely to use that. So we were looking at a system. What if we looked at 
healthcare data instead of homeless sector data to see if we could come up with more accurate numbers. Uh, and when we started with the on the Ontario wide healthcare data, um, and we tested, we, we developed an algorithm, tested it against people who we knew were homeless or not because of a project uh, um, preventing discharge to homelessness where we were following people for a year. We actually found that the current system we could probably triple um, in order to come up with more recent numbers. And that's important for a number of reasons, including the fact that the funding formulas are based on the lower numbers. And, and this is one of the reasons that the sector ends up being underfunded. So you're presenting your uh, findings or some of the information that you've collected. Yeah, uh, when when, and where? Thus far. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll be doing that in Goose Bay tomorrow. Uh, we're at the North, North 2 Hotel. Uh, and then we'll also be going to St. John's, and we'll be doing a similar forum on Monday. Uh, so we, uh, because, of the, you know, those were both places that, that were included. Um, and as I say, we're going back to all of the communities because we know that this is a constantly changing thing. So it, it's more about a dialogue with the community, what we've learned thus far, um, and then uh, and then having some table discussions. You know, what did what did we get right? What did you already know? But also, what might we have missed? What's changed since we were here, uh, so that uh, we can make the most use of the last year of. Um, of our funding where we're really going to be focusing on uh, deeper analysis. Dr. Cheryl Forchuk, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Linda. And so they're going to be uh, releasing more information at that forum tomorrow in Happy Valley Goose Bay. Well, a sad day today in uh, rock history. Rock and roll icon Tina Turner passed away today following a lengthy illness at the age of 83. Anna Mae Bullock, known as the queen of rock and roll and the acid queen, her career dates back to the late 1950s with Ike Turner's Kings of Rhythm. He rebranded her as Tina Turner and as Ike and Tina Turner reached stardom together with songs like Proud Mary and Nutbush City Limits. She famously left an abusive Ike Turner in the 1970s. His career completely faltered and uh, fell away, and her career as a solo performer skyrocketed in the 1980s, reaching absolute superstardom with the release of the album Private Dancer, which spawned hits like What's Love Got to Do With It? And you know, um, a lot of artists will do cover songs, uh, songs made famous by other artists, iconic songs usually, and it's a tricky business. Uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it fails, but sometimes you get that rare opportunity for an artist to take a song that is so well-known, so well-loved, uh, so recognized, and they can elevate it to a whole other level. And uh, Tina Turner did it here with the Beatles, uh, Come Together. This is one of my favorite um, Tina Turner songs, so uh, enjoy it uh, We as we pay tribute to the late Tina Turner here on News Talk.